Welcome to Murder Bucket, a true crime podcast where I talk about everything from murders, paranormal activity, kidnappings, abductions, and also weird stuff. If you never want to miss a new episode, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. It would also be helpful if you rated and left me a review. This spreads the word about Murder Bucket. Let's see what we're going to pull out of the bucket this week. Good evening, Murder Bucket family. Welcome to Tuesday. You are here with me, and we have another fantastic episode for you tonight. We will be talking about the unsolved case of the Austin, Texas yogurt shop murders. But first, as always, let's quickly do our week slash weekend recap. Last week wasn't too interesting for me. Um, About the only thing that I did that I might not have mentioned in my previous episodes, but now that I think about it, I'm pretty sure I did tell you about it, is I've been on a running journey. I started the Couch to 5K several years ago, and I got really far into it. I could run for a long time, and it was fantastic. And then my mother died, and I just kind of lost interest in, in everything, and subsequently it was losing interest in running, so I just gave it up. Until a couple of weeks ago, I started it back up again because of somebody that came into my work, and her and I started talking about it. So that's what I've been doing. I will run for three days, and then I'll take a break, and then three days, take a break, etc., etc. So I've been doing really good. Um, Last night, I actually ran for three minutes straight without stopping. Yes, I was winded by the time I was finished, but I still did it, and that's a whole lot better than I had done when I first started on this, and it was great. About the only other thing that happened this week was we had a co-worker of mine, her husband and her children come over on Saturday and have dinner with us. We had hamburgers and hot dogs that we ended up having to cook inside because it did rain most of the morning, so we couldn't get the grill cleaned in time, which wasn't a big deal. And then we ended up just kind of spending the rest of the night playing video games. My husband has those like little miniature NESs and SNESs that they came out with several years ago. So my coworkers' boys were actually super into it. But it was actually really cute because her husband and my husband are roughly about the same age. And so they play like all the same games when they were little. So they were playing Super Mario together and kind of attempting to school the kids on playing it, which we thought was hilarious. Um, And then they played this other game called Nidhogg. I don't know if any of you know what it is. Just kind of like a simple little game of two people back and forth, kind of like sword fighting. And whoever has, like, I guess, control of the screen has to run toward the end of their, like, map. Once they get to the end of the map, the quote-unquote Nidhogg will eat you and that's how you win. They played that for a long time and the boys got into it and it was just really funny. I was supposed to play softball on Sunday, but 
our coach and the other team's coach decided that they were just going to cancel the game because we were supposed to have really bad thunderstorms. Turns out, never happened. They still kept the game canceled, which kind of worked on my end because then my husband and I were able to get laundry done. That's besides the point. Nothing else really happened this week. Monday was, like I said, Monday. Tuesday is here and you are with me. But before we get into tonight's episode, I do have to mention um, something that I did post on social media. So if you are not following me, you probably haven't seen this yet. My husband, our daughter, and I will be out of town next week. We leave on Tuesday morning, so Tuesday evening, when a normal episode would come out, I've decided to go ahead and do another Q&A. So that means I need you to send me all your questions. It can be personal. It could be true crime related. It could be super random. It could be anything. All I ask is that you keep it super clean. Don't make it awkward. Don't ask me some like weird, strange, like sexual question because I'm not going to answer it. So you can send it to my email, themurderbucketpod at gmail.com. You can message me on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. You can comment on any of the posts that I have on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Please just send all your questions. I want to have a ton of questions. So we have a pretty lengthy episode next week. And it's not just like a 10 minute, let me answer your questions and then it's over kind of thing. I want it to be like a normal length episode like we normally do. So send me your questions. Now let's go ahead and get into our episode. We have the Austin, Texas Yogurt Shop Murders. On December 6, 1991, 17-year-old Eliza Thomas and Jennifer Harbison worked an evening shift at I Can't Believe It's Yogurt in Austin. Sometime between 8.15 and 8.30, a couple came in to get yogurt because the husband had dental surgery earlier that day. Around 9 p.m., Jennifer took a break and drove down the street to North Cross Mall to pick up her sister Sarah and her friend Amy Ayers. They came back to the shop and Jennifer went back to her shift while the girls walked a few doors down to a pizza shop before returning. Eliza's mom came in at 9.30 to check in on the girls, grab some yogurt, and then left. Around 10, a former military police officer, Daryl Croft, came in with a few acquaintances. He only stayed for a short time before leaving. Before the shop closed, several more customers came and went. The last sale on the register was 1042, made by a couple who had just gotten out of a movie. It's believed that while Eliza and Jennifer were the employees who were responsible for closing up the shop, Sarah and Amy helped so they could get out quicker. Just before midnight, Austin Police Department patrolman Troy Gay drove by the Hillside Center strip mall where the shop was located and immediately noticed smoke coming from the shop. He called dispatch at 1147 to report the fire. Fire crews arrived shortly after. They noticed that all the lights were off and the closed sign was facing outward. When firefighter Renee Garza approached the door, 
He could see the fire inside and smoke was filling up the lobby. They quickly popped the door open to gain access and began to put the fire out. The fire was out within minutes, but as soon as the flames and smoke died down, David DeVue noticed something out of place. He grabbed Renee Garza's attention and pointed out what looked like a foot. That's when things took a turn. Officers on scene took over, and while at first they only saw one body, soon after they discovered bodies of four girls. Three of the girls were together, with two stacked on top of each other, while the fourth was just a few feet away. Officers made a call for a homicide detective. Sergeant John Jones arrived on scene. He came straight from an interview with a local news network. Here is an audio clip from 48 hours from when Sergeant Jones was called to the scene. Jonesy? Yeah. Uh, you hear about the call 2900 West Anderson? Yeah, I'm headed over there. Okay. I'll meet you out there. 2900. Can I get around from the south side? There's a fire hose stretch across the Anderson Lane. I'm John Jones. I was a sergeant investigator in homicide December 1991. Time stopped for the whole time that that case was going on. When it got to these four young ladies, it just stopped. And it burns an image in your mind. Multiple young kids, fire set. Victims were stripped. You know, some of the, the more minute edge of details are a little bit hazy, but it doesn't take very much long to get back up to speed to, you know, so where it's December 6th all over again. Okay, at 11.47, one of our patrol officers called in to dispatch smoke coming out from, I can't believe it's yogurt. Fire department got here shortly thereafter. What we found in the back there was we found four victims. We're handling it as a homicide right now because it appears that one of the victims was struck in the head. Were the victims together or were they in different parts of the building? Can you... No, I can't. Can't give you that either. Were they bound in any way? Can't give you that. Was there any sign of forced entry to this building? Can't give you that. What can you give us? Just what I gave you. It's still very early in the investigation, okay? When Sergeant Jones arrived, they began to investigate and quickly realized that the girls had been forced to undress, have their hands tied behind them, and were gagged with their own clothes. They were all shot in the head execution style. It was thought that the fourth girl, whose body had been found a few feet away, may have tried to crawl to the front to get help before passing out. The back door of the shop was unlocked and police believed that whomever committed the crime 
used it to make their getaway since the front door was locked and the keys were found inside. Officers quickly discovered that during the murder, the suspects had also robbed the shop and stolen roughly $540. A full-scale arson investigation took place that weekend. Officers were hoping that this would help determine when the fire started and how. AFD arson investigator Melvin Stale stated in an official report that the fire had started around 11.42 p.m., just 42 minutes after the shop was supposed to close. The fire burned so intensely and so hot that one of the girl's teeth had started to burn away. Some of the jewelry was also melted, as well as canisters of cleaning supplies that were located in the back storage room. With the fire being so hot, firefighters did use a large amount of water to extinguish it. This caused a large amount of evidence to be washed away from the girl's body as well as the scene itself. This made the investigation extremely difficult. In an article on Unresolved.me, it states that investigators theorize that styrofoam cups filled with lighter fluid was placed near the bodies to help light the fire and increase the spread. It was later discovered that chocolate syrup as well as other ingredients had been placed on or around the bodies to potentially mess with evidence as well as mix with and contaminate any blood. Police speculated that the murders started off as a robbery that took place at closing because they found cleaning supplies and rags in the front of the shop. On December 8th, Sergeant Mike Huckabay of the Austin Police Department stated in an interview with reporters this, It appears that they were closing and in the process of cleaning up. I would say that they were probably killed one after another. They appeared to be where they were shot. The first thing that comes to mind is crack cocaine. I've been in homicide a pretty good time, and this is the worst one I've ever seen, considering it involved four young ladies at the same time. Even with most of the evidence destroyed by the fire, the crime was thought to have been committed by more than one person. Bryce Foods, the company that owned the shop, put together a $25,000 reward for any information that led to the arrest and conviction of the person or persons responsible for these murders. The company also met with the victims' families to help in any way they could and to support them during this time. In the days following, police began to receive several tips from the public. Some were pertinent while others gave non-essential information. Police began to arrange interviews with witnesses to try and narrow in on a culprit. Remember the former military police officer, Daryl Croft? Well, he told police that while he was at the shop with two acquaintances, he noticed two separate couples as well as a young man who was alone. He described this young man as having a deep voice, a large nose, and seemed very fidgety. He stated that the young man purchased a can of soda and then walked to the back of the shop toward the bathroom. By the time Daryl left, he stated he didn't see him again. The couple who had gotten out of the movie and stopped by right before closing stated that they saw several individuals sitting at the table closest to the register. They only noticed that both of them were either wearing jackets or very thick sweaters. They didn't see their faces as the jackets had obscured them. 
Several other witnesses told police that they remembered seeing Amy and Sarah walk to the pizza shop a few doors down, grab pizza, and head back to the yogurt shop and then hang out in the lobby while they ate. Many did state that during the last half hour that the shop was open, Amy and Sarah were not in the lobby, and they believed that they must have been in the back helping the girls close. The pizza box was found in the back of the shop. Another witness told police that one of the girls locked the door behind them as they left that evening. Out of all the people that police had interviewed, they were unable to find a connection. When the girls' bodies were taken to the medical examiner's office for an autopsy, it was discovered that they had high levels of BTU output in their lungs, which suggested an accelerant may have been used. They also discovered that Jennifer, Sarah, and Eliza were together when they were discovered, and Amy was the one that was found several feet away. Three of the girls had been shot in the back of the head execution style, while Amy had been shot twice. Police began to explore the backstories of each of the girls to see if any of them had anything to hide that might help them find out who murdered them and set the yogurt shop on fire. Unfortunately, after police did their investigation, they came up with nothing. All the girls were good kids who worked hard and had promising futures. Several months prior to the murder, though, several robberies had taken place in the Hillside Center strip mall where the shop was located. This included a clothing store that had been robbed eight different times. Several of the shop owners in the strip believed that the recent robberies might have played a part in the yogurt shop murder. During the initial investigation, police had a large number of people of interest. This included 16-year-old Maurice Pierce, who was caught with a 22 caliber pistol in a nearby mall just days after the murder. Maurice told the police that the pistol was the murder weapon, but he had loaned it to his friend Forrest Wellborn. Both boys were subjected to polygraph tests and questioning about their involvement. Neither one was able to provide substantial evidence. Other than both of them being down the street the night of the murder, police were unable to tie them to the crime. It turns out that Detective Hector Polanso coerced a confession out of Maurice. He was later removed from the task force. Police would later state that more than 50 people falsely confessed to the yogurt shop murders, but when they pressed to provide more details, they either failed to do so or repeated information that wasn't true. Several weeks after the investigation started, the case began to receive national attention through a couple of high-profile broadcasts. First was an appearance on America's Most Wanted, and then 48 Hours. The case went cold for a little while until, in the fall of 1992, two men who were wanted for an unrelated kidnapping and assault in Austin were arrested in Mexico. When Austin police questioned the suspects, they at first denied any involvement with the murders, but after being questioned by Mexican authorities, they confessed. When Austin police re-questioned them, the details they gave did not match any of the evidence found and they ended up recanting their confession. The case went cold again. 
That was until in August of 1999, police announced that investigation into the murders was being relaunched. Detectives began combing through case files to see if there might have been something that was missed. What they found was a confession which implicated four young men. Police then announced in the fall that they had an arrest coming. In September, police began questioning two suspects and during their questioning, both confessed to being involved. Michael Scott and Maurice Pierce provided information which was limited to not only a specific series of events, but information that police had supposedly withheld from the crime scene, such as the materials used to bind the victims, as well as their location within the yogurt shop. By October, Robert Springsteen, Michael Scott, Maurice Pierce, and Forrest Wellburn were arrested. Robert's trial began in April of 2001. During the trial, the judge allowed Michael's confession to be admissible. The prosecution relied mostly on these two confessions because they had no physical evidence. He ended up only being charged with one of the murders. Robert was found guilty in June and sentenced to death just two days after closing arguments. Michael's trial began in July of 2002. He was also only charged with one of the murders. During his trial, the prosecution also presented no physical evidence and relied solely on the two confessions. In September, Michael was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. In January of 2003, Maurice was released from police custody and all charges against him were dropped, even though many believed that he was the ringleader. Forrest Wellburn was also never charged for these murders. Several years later, Michael and Robert appealed their convictions. Robert's appeal was heard by the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals in 2006. His conviction was overturned in May. The state decided to appeal this decision and went straight to the U.S. Supreme Court, but they refused to hear the appeal. Defense lawyers for both Michael and Robert requested that DNA testing be done, but no matches against evidence had been found. On June 24, 2009, Judge Mike Lynch ruled in response to Travis County District Attorney Rosemary Lindbergh's request that one of the trials be continued that both Michael and Robert be freed on bond pending their upcoming trials. On October 28, 2009, all charges were dismissed against them. On December 23, 2010, Maurice Pierce was stopped by Austin police officers during a normal traffic stop. He got out of his vehicle and began to flee, but after a struggle with one of the officers, he pulled out a knife and stabbed the officer to which the officer pulled his weapon and shot. Maurice died. This case remained cold for several more years until in February of 2002, investigators stated that with advanced evidence in DNA technology, scientists are able to squeeze more information from a small piece of evidence that was found at the scene. In an article on CBSAustin.com, CBS correspondent Aaron Moriarty states, That's actually a hopeful thing 
because if new tests can continually draw out more markers out of this sample, then the hope is not so far in the future that they will be able to at least connect with a suspect. To this day, the case remains unsolved. And that concludes tonight's episode of the 1991 Austin, Texas yogurt shop murder. As I mentioned earlier in tonight's episode, next week I am going on vacation with my husband and my daughter. So we will be doing a Q&A episode. I would love for you to send me all of your questions, whether they are personal, true crime related, anything weird, obscure. The only thing I ask is please don't be inappropriate because I will not be answering those kinds of questions. You can send them to my email, themurderbucketpod at gmail.com. You can comment on the posts that I put up on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Or you can send me a personal message on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Before you go, please take a moment to listen to this promo from my friends at the Evidence Locker Podcast. The Evidence Locker is a weekly podcast about international true crime. Made by hardcore true crime fans, it's somewhat grungy. Join us as we explore the dark corners of the globe. We've covered cases from Sweden, Brazil, Australia, and the U.S., to mention a few. Find us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for sticking around to the end. Be sure to follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.